Good morning. Good morning. How are you on this fantastic Friday morning, Hondra? You know, Jeff, I'm amped about hearing about energy. I don't know. We might just have to power through this hour. But what's going on in the world today? Well, we'll hear about some current events. And uh, as always, we'll take a peek into the musky corner. Ah, smells very musky in there. And more than that, we'll bring you our new long-running segment today at EPA, where we discuss the dysfunctional organization being led presently by Scott Pruitt. We'll also talk to Lewis Fulton about what it means to provide universal access to mobility and energy in a low-carbon future, or some other words. All that and more when we return on Watts Radio here at the Sweater Vest. So, stay with us.
Good morning, and welcome back to Watts Radio. Welcome back, Jeff. So, what's going on today in the world of energy? Well, Jeff, uh, you know, I was reading about this week, uh, last week, and uh, uh, the big news is obviously um, President Trump's new uh, solar tariffs. Yes, uh, President Trump, uh, obviously uh, always driving as much uh, news as possible, um, is starting a new trade war with uh, China, imposing a 30% tariff on imported solar panels. But that's going to help bring jobs back to America, right? They took our jobs! So, it, it actually turns out that most solar jobs are not in manufacturing in the U.S. It's actually in the installations. So, this is one policy from the Trump administration that is actually likely to hurt jobs um, and make it so that there's fewer people installing new clean energy. Because... A surefire way to grow the economy is to prevent people from working. Yes, Jeff. Over 80% of residential solar installations are actually uh, are, are, do actually use uh, imported panels. And uh, the solar industry employs about 250,000 people, maybe 300,000 people if we include some ancillary services, as of uh, the end of last year. And, uh, uh, you know, which is, I, I think, you know, about five times or four times the amount of people employed in the coal industry, actually. But at any rate... Uh, 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 over three quarters of them are employed in installation, actually. So Jeff's totally right. And um, uh, so the early estimates on this are saying that it might reduce rooftop solar installations by 10 to 20 percent. But what uh, our fearless leader Trump can, uh, you know, take away, he can also giveth to the coal industry, right? So I hear that uh, Trump has been trying, going gangbusters, bringing back coal jobs to America's heartland. Yes, you know, he is single-handedly um, suppressing all other technological development along the utility scale and electricity generation and uh, subsidizing, using his great and vast fortune, uh, uh, which he made in Canada, um, to subsidize coal use, I guess. Uh, uh, anyway. So it gets really wonky. There's actually this provision, which is uh, the Trump administration was directing the DOE to um, award... Uh, power generators that could maintain a 90-day um, generation capacity on site. So you you would hold 90 days worth of coal to burn in your power plant. So it, it would, in theory, create more resiliency. But it turns out that you don't actually need to store a lot of coal to get resiliency. And we found this out kind of the hard way during the extreme cold temperatures that were taking place in the Northeast, where the coal turbines couldn't actually spin up and down fast enough, and so having reserves didn't matter. And in fact, it was the natural gas uh, turbines that could spin up faster. And um, yeah, so, so allowing more coal to be stored does not help improve grid situation. So, you know, that's that's just one more thing with uh, Trump trying to uh, improve the world of energy. Yeah. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm not sure that uh, um, it's a clear, it's a clear one for one on, on, on what's uh, going on there. But um, we did, we did, there was this guy, I guess, uh, uh, Bruce Walker at the uh, Department of Energy who was talking at an event basically saying how um, you know, because we're having all this cold weather, 
uh, we obviously need more coal in the grid. So um, uh, it's it's a challenge. So uh, but, California. But no, no, before, actually, I guess we can jump to the California corner on climate. But before we do that, or even as we do that, there was another important news story that happened, which is our very own Hondro got to introduce the legend, the man himself, Governor Jerry Brown, at a highly prestigious academic conference that took place on the UC Davis campus. Yeah, so Jerry actually, so for those of you who don't know, there is this uh, big entity within the state of California called the Air Resources Board, the California Air Resources Board, which is pretty much the preeminent environmental regulatory agency in the country, uh, actually probably staffs more people in the EPA these days. And uh, 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 the, the EPA, the California Air Resources Board was actually created 50 years ago, um, the same year actually, the, 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 the last year that there was uh, uh, Brown Sr., uh, Jerry's dad was governor, but it was not actually created by Governor Brown, it was signed by the Gipper, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and so yeah, there was an event celebrating 50 years of CARB. Which I, I, I actually, as a wonky nerd, I, I was very excited about. And I had the unique and, and tremendous opportunity to introduce the governor at this event. And uh, it was, as I, I, uh, I, I have to say, the most stressful 60 seconds of my Ph.D. career. And we can safely say that Hanji has peaked in his academic profession. Yes, and I'm going to mic drop out of here, and that's, that's it. ABD, baby. Moving on to the California Climate Corner, what is going on that matters and the only state that matters yeah jeff so obviously california had some had a really really rough fire season yeah so people maybe aren't as aware of this because we have the attentional span of a teaspoon um which mm. is uh there were a bunch of disasters that happened this this year well i guess in 2017 rather where we think of the hurricanes you know that that hit texas and puerto rico and a few other locations but uh there are major fires in napa sonoma and it killed a lot of people, destroyed tons of homes, and it was declared a state of emergency. And beyond Jeff's attempts at equivalency, yes, fire was really bad in the state of California. Our hearts go out to all the hurricane victims out there as well. But uh, yeah, no, it was bad. We lost we lost some major communities here. Many homes were burned. A number of people died. It was a real thing. And uh, you know what's really challenge? One of the main challenges with these fires is figuring out you know uh, how they started to some extent. Although maybe you think of it as an academic exercise. You know why do we care? Obviously, they're fires. Well. A lot of times they're man-made causes, and in both the case of the Santa Rosa fire earlier this year, as well as the big fire that was in Southern California, it appears that utilities, that's electric utilities, had a role to play. And so for this northern Sonoma-Napa fire, it was PG&E. And so going back to the academic exercises, a couple of academics over at UC Berkeley, a little-known university in California, um, they decided to look at what this risk means for utilities. And so they analyzed the stock prices affiliated with utilities and looked at how stock prices have changed due to the fires. And so there's been a variety of legal things and stuff that has been ongoing with the Public Utilities Commission, which basically puts these utilities at risk for covering the costs of the fires that occur. And so we've seen major stock prices drop for these utilities uh, on the order of billions of dollars. And so that's that's no small potatoes, I guess, in, in the world of dealing with fire management. And we know that climate change is only going to make everything worse, up to and including fires. I will tell you one thing that climate change is not going to make worse. Coral bleaching. 
Mm. It's already bad. Yeah. So, I mean, I you know, it's just, you know, it's just going to be worse. I mean, it's just going to be just as bad. It's going to be just just as bad. Yep. Moving on to that. Wait, wait. Do you smell it? I smell something. Is that is that bacon? No, it's it's, no, that... it's 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 a little musky. No, it is it is quite musky in here. <laughs> Ah, it must be America's favorite superhero. But we unfortunately have really boring news with Musk this week. In <laughs> fact, it's so boring it involves Musk's, uh, I'd say most recent foray, but honestly it probably isn't. But one of his forays with The Boring Company. The Boring Company. It's a company that bores holes through the ground, envisioned by America's favorite superhero when he was stuck in L.A. traffic. And he thought to himself... Man, if only I could tunnel underneath all these cars and get to my destination at 150 miles an hour, my life would be improved. Let's be real. This is also somebody who's described described public transit as basically gross. Why would you want to share space with other people? And so, of course, sitting in traffic in L.A., he thought to himself, if I only had my own private pneumatic tube that I could fly down to work, thus would solve all problems. So he decided to go buy himself some... uh, you know, tunnel drillers and start up a company which to date has sold millions of dollars of hats, um, which is a very successful endeavor indeed. And um, he's now actually trying to get approval for drilling a bunch of tunnels. And so he's looking at doing a pilot tunnel of 6.5 miles from LA to Culver City, um, which will then operate little um, sort of mini public transportation. Or read, it will take your Teslas and put them on a sled that will then move them at high speeds from one location to another. Um, and he's trying to, you know, demonstrate that he can gain support across a bunch of local governments to do something that is probably questionable. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, I I, I, I think it's awesome. I mean, as somebody who grew up watching the Hudsucker Proxy, I also thought, like, and I mean, like, and Brazil, you know, I thought the world was going to be, like, the future was an elaborate system of pneumatic tubes. But I have to say, uh, you know, as somebody who else who has grown up in California, we have these things called earthquakes. And um, so, like, an intricate system of underground tubes sort of scares me. Uh, at any rate, um, you know, who am I to question America's favorite uh, superhero? But, um, you know, I was reading this report this week. You know, I, I love to read the consulting firm Reportage. And uh, uh, it was about, you know, uh, companies leading uh, companies in developing self-driving technology. That's, a, you know, automated vehicle software. And we all know that Tesla is awesome when it comes to automated vehicles. They are awesome, except for when they're not. What do you mean? Well, uh, you know, Tesla actually has had a series of kind of notable accidents um, where, you know, people have died or crashed into, like, completely obviously parked cars. Wait, let's get into that in a second because uh, this report was kind of interesting because it rated 19 major automakers as far as how much they had said they were going to do about vehicle automation versus how much they had actually achieved. But Tesla is disruptive and innovative and out of Silicon Valley, so of course they're number one. And Tesla ranked last. No. Don't say it's so. Yeah. Don't tell. Wait, quick. If you're on Twitter right now, don't tweet this at Elon because I don't want to break his, like, you know, will. But uh, they ranked last. So much for Tesla rocking the automation boat. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, 
how bad is their automation? Well, it's been a rough week for them, actually. Um, a Tesla Model S, while in autopilot mode, crashed into a fire truck. Yes, actually it did. And this isn't the first crash notable in the last couple of years. You know, um, obviously last year there was a lot of talk about this uh, Tesla that crashed into a white truck while on autopilot killing the driver. Um, in this case, it seems that, you know, while autopilot was engaged, um, that it, uh, you know, you know, we, we, we can't necessarily completely blame it. Um, the fire truck uh, 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 was parked um, with its lights on. And um, you know how hard it is to see a parked fire truck with its lights on. I mean, it's an ethical question. What do you do? Do you crash into a parked fire truck or do you avoid it? Right. And in this case, I think the real ethical question was, um, do I crash into the parked fire truck or do I crash into the two parked police cars next to it? And in this case, it it made the choice. It said, you know, um, if I crash into the police cars, they're probably going to arrest me. I'll crash into the fire truck. And so it crashed into the fire truck. But funnily enough, there was also a run-in with an automated Model S this week with the police when a Bay Area techie got way drunk and said, no, not a problem. Can jump behind the wheel of my Model S. It'll drive me home safely. And then he passed out while his car was driving. The Tesla is programmed that if it doesn't detect your hands on the wheel after you know some amount of time, it'll put on the hazard lights and pull off to the side of the road where it'll be safe. And so it did this, and the police came knocking and said, hey, you're drunk. When they breathalyzed him, he had a, a point one six. Yeah, so he blew a point one six, and and just so you guys know, you know, like if your your Model S pulls over on the side of the road, you know, not necessarily everywhere you go are the cops going to come along and tag you for it. So you know, it was not a terrible idea, I have to say. But uh, in this case, he was parked on the side of the Bay Bridge, and uh, you know, at uh, one a.m. when your Tesla's on the side of the Bay Bridge with its hazard lights on, you are kind of sending a real loud signal. But you know, don't drink and drive. But if you must, or if you musk. It's probably best in a Tesla Model S. Yeah, don't drink and drive, except in a Model S. I I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but it's good. So uh, uh, that, I think, concludes the current musky corners for the day, Jeff. I guess we can listen to some sweet, sweet listening tunes. And when we come back, we'll learn a little bit about what's going on today at the EPA.
you got yourself a phoenix Well, you can swear by me There's a woman inside It's easy to hide into the forest Through the trees I caught a vision of a creature But you're just a man So eager to prove you nothing to lose So relax, unleash your hands So relax, unleash your hands Show your teeth, little man We belong in the Listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, the Choco Tacos. Welcome back to Watts Radio. Um, this is a show where we talk to you about all the things that matter. Like, what's happening today at the EPA? Yeah, Jeff, uh, what is happening at the EPA anymore? You know, we, we, we talk a lot about this kind of Donald Trump time that we've entered. And, and I think there's, there's no... Um, bigger or more important example of of kind of the danger of of the political movement that is Donald Trump, as in what's happening at the EPA. Right. So the EPA has been always mired in lawsuits, and now we're starting to see a lot more lawsuits affiliated with climate change action. So we're going to talk about the lawsuits that exist in Scott Pruitt's America, which is because the EPA is no longer acting on addressing climate change, which they've been legally bound to do at some level now for a while. Um, 
it's coming up to uh, citizens and states and cities and um, in some places, kids to take action against these organizations of politic power. So if you don't know, Scott Pruitt, uh, who is the EPA administrator appointed by Donald Trump, um, was the uh, attorney general for uh, Oklahoma, right? Is that what it was? Um, and he, as, as, as in his capacity at the state level, uh, was very active. Um, in fact, I think one of the most active people in suing the EPA um, to stop regulations. And so now um, with said uh, Fox guarding said hen house, um, we are seeing this kind of abdication of responsibility really play out. So, um, you know, like New York. Uh, is is a, is a is a place that I think, at least from the the legal standpoint, seems to be leading the way a little bit, right, Jeff? Yeah. So New York, the attorney generals of New York and Massachusetts, to some extent, have decided that because the EPA is not doing anything anymore, they're going to start suing fossil fuel companies. Um, and this plays into the Exxon New, hashtag Exxon New, um, kind of scandal that's going on, which is Exxon scientists in the 70s did a lot of research and funded substantial research about climate change and the risks of climate change. And then they kind of just sat on it and sequestered it and didn't publicly release it. And so now uh, the attorney generals are investigating uh, Exxon's claims and whether or not those claims that they sat on and didn't go public with and they didn't act on has misled investors about the risks of investing in Exxon, which, you know, to be fair is it is a risk that if you're contributing to climate change um, and you're building platforms and other assets that are going to be influenced by sea level rise or any number of other things, then the lifetime of these assets is not exactly what you say it is. And so that could account for billions of dollars. And so there's some investigation in that sort of pathway. Um, the Security and Exchange Commission has also gotten on this. Um, and they're doing an investigation to find out if, uh, I mean, there are going to be stranded assets and therefore their uh, disclosures and filing statements about the, the solid nature of the company is to be questioned. Um, mm. Hmm. It's interesting stuff, Jeff. I, I'm, I think, you know, I mean, I guess what I think about this a lot is that, you know, the, the EPA is uh, kind of the principal steward as, and a public authority for, um, you know, our natural environment and, and kind of our, um, our endowment of natural resources uh, within this country. And, uh, you know, what I see is kind of this total abdication of uh, responsibility um, by the EPA. And, and you know, I was, you, I was mentioned, thinking about this, this, um, this uh, Juliana case, um, I think is pretty interesting. So this is a, a lawsuit brought by um, a group of youth plaintiffs um, that's now at the the Ninth Circuit, so now on the the liberal West Coast circuit of uh, uh, of the the federal judiciary. Um, basically, the 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 kids here, the youths, are asking um, that we be that we that the 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 judicial branch compel the government to, to address climate change um, because uh, uh, they say that. You know, this failure to um, address this looming threat of climate change is basically depriving them of their right to uh, pursue life, liberty, and pro property. You know, the, the very core that makes America, America, I guess. Um, and so the fun and interesting thing about this is that the case hasn't actually been heard yet. And so there's been 
Um, so, so they're they're trying to, or I guess if the case does get heard, um, the defendants are going to be far-reaching. Right now, it covers executive branch, uh, a bunch of organizations, um, and the case as it moves along will, in theory, narrow down to a couple of actual culprits. But right now, it's pretty far-reaching across the wider parts of the American government. Um, and so they're, they're requesting various documentation and information and records affiliated with it. Um, and so uh, the oil companies um, have stepped in and said, hey, 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 this is not reasonable. And so they were pushing it to basically get the case thrown out by appealing the ability to take the case to trial to higher levels of government. So the case hasn't even been heard yet. And so um, basically the ability to hear about this case uh, to even bring the case to trial was being tried. Right. Um, so the kids don't have standing. I think there's, you know, there was two levels here, right? There was one question of the jurisdictional authority of the court. You know, they brought it. To, they brought it to this, like, you know, a federal court in Oregon, and 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 a favorable judge, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and who obviously was excited to hear it. And then, you know, there's also this question about the kids and their standing to really bring such a case. But, you know, I think that this is indicative of, uh, of uh, you know, this kind of larger disconnect between segments of our society, right? Where, you know, on one side we have this group of kids who, um, you know, is saying, hey, this is, this is a big problem that you guys aren't dealing with that actually is uh, – you know, going to affect our affect us for the rest of our lives, and then you you do have a large swath of country that's basically saying that's a bunch of bull, and uh, and I don't even believe it. Yeah, and so the case in theory is going to first hit trial February fifth, um, if the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals allows them to go forward, um, and. I don't know. I listened to the hour or so long um, sort of uh, remarks to the Ninth Circuit, and it seemed at least two of the three judges seemed like maybe they were in favor of letting the court go to trial or the mm -hmm. case go to trial. So uh, we'll see, and you'll definitely hear about it on Watts Radio. Yes. We'll be uh, taking some deep dives into um, uh, action at the EPA in our, uh, uh, as we continue our now long-running segment, um, Today at the EPA, uh, uh, where you can hear such exciting tidbits about, um, you know, uh, uh, seating, si the cone of silence installed uh, inside of uh, Speaker Pruitt's office or Administrator Pruitt's office. And with that, we'll play some fine listening tunes. And when we come back, we'll talk to... Lou Fulton about everything that matters. So, stay with us. My brother's a fascist, lives in Palacios, fishes the pier every night. He holsters his Glock in a double retention, he smokes while he waits for a bite. He don't like the Muslims, he don't like the Jews He don't like the blacks and he don't trust the news He hates the Hispanics and alternate views He'll tell you it's tough to be white My sister's a Christian, she likes to go fishing She don't mind my brother at all he puts her on redfish and flounder and trout And they tear up the flats in the fall She gets back to 
Dallas all sunburnt and sour Worn out from slinging plugs hour after hour Seeing spots when she closes her eyes in the shower She don't see a conflict at all It's the state of the union, I guess It's always been iffy at best We're all in the family the cursed and the blessed is the state of the union, I guess. We're all in the family. The cursed and the blessed is the state of the union, I guess. Mother turned 80, consummate lady, we took her to Golden Corral. Cause she likes the yeast rolls and bourbon street chicken, we oughta known better by now. Cause me and my brother got into it good, I called him a hick and he called me a hood. He said dad always treated his Mexicans good, I guess you think you're better somehow. Yeah, you think you're better, cardigan sweater, snowflake if ever there was. You think you're so cool cause you did good in school, you got whipped every day on the bus. Sister lit out for the shout and got worse, went to Wednesday night prayer at the new Christian church with a cross on her neck and a nine in her purse. She might be the wisest of us. It's the state of the union, I guess We're all in a hell of a mess We're all in the family, the cursed and the blessed It's the state of the union, I guess It's the state of the union, I say Christmas dinner might be hell to pay So how about them cowboys and have a blessed day It's the state of the union, I say it's the state of the union, I guess It's always been iffy at best We'll do all we're able with what we got left It's the state of the union, I guess We'll do all we're able with what we got left It's the state of the union, I guess I'm Lou Fulton. Uh, I'm a director of the Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways Program at uh, in, in Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis, and uh, I've been doing this for about five years. And before that, I lived in Paris for 12 years. I worked at the Inter International Energy Agency, and uh, and that was great. And I've also lived in Kenya and Bangladesh, and and thought a lot about international issues. Uh, and uh, but I like being in California. You know, we talk a lot about how climate change is a big deal because we need to reduce all of our energy consumption, and we need to, like drive less, and we need to like you know eat fewer burgers, and and you know all this stuff we have to do to change our lives. But actually, there's this whole other thing, which is that you know so much of the world still doesn't actually have enough access to all the energy and food and mileage that they want to generate like we do. 
Right. And they don't have access to the places they want to go. And in fact, in many countries, people don't have enough access to even get a job. I mean, there's many, many studies of uh, slums in Africa and Asia where uh, people just can't get to the places where they would like to be employed and they can't afford to live anywhere near where they would be employed. So it's a huge uh, economic uh, barrier for people. And so, yeah, it's a big deal just to get that access. At least on some like long kind of time scale, you know, people's lives are getting better. People's quality of life is getting better, and that you know, kind of globally, you know, as technology gets better, we kind of hope it's enabling all this improvement in quality of life more equitably, even maybe. Mm. But uh, um, you know, if we also are saying we're trying to like do less and and have less and do more kind of stuff with respect to um, our our climate impact, you know, those kind of almost seem at odds to some extent when we, we try to think about providing, you know, um, uh, you know, what about the car? You know, giving right. everybody a car. Right. Well, I guess the way that we try to think about it is that we do want everybody to get the access that they need and that they want. We want people to have a great life, you know, and, and go everywhere they want to go. But somehow we have to balance that with, with that there is not unlimited energy. You know, maybe eventually all cars will be solar. So that direct solar for cars is, is probably not going to happen. But, um, you know, if we can solve the energy uh, issue, then, then that part might be cool but we are still going to be faced with the fact that if you if give every person a 2 ton car to drive around in it'll never work we're going to have horrible traffic you know which we have all over the world right now and we need to figure out new ways to uh, to move around that that just works better for society at least enough public transport that you're allocating road space much more efficiently than we do in this country and the risk is that as people get richer they're going to shift to private cars and it's just going to get even worse i mean these are cities that are way denser than we are they just can't afford to have a car based system but um, yeah somehow we have to create a, a road space efficiency system that we're, you know, basically sharing and we're and we're in mass transit or, or micro transit or whatever it is, three people in an Uber. And uh, that kind of dream of that modern uh, transport system with with high relatively good speed so that people can get where they're going, but that isn't clogging everything up and is also not creating safety hazards for pedestrians. That's a big one for me. I think we can do it, but I don't know that too many places have so far. Along with this like notion of access and car ownership, um, and sort of on the U.S. model for things, we often hear about this concept of leapfrogging, mm. where you can you know go into this. Uh, I guess maybe in the U.S. we romanticize what leapfrogging would look like as sort of distributed solar on top of ha- like rooftops, and so you can kind of avoid this building out the grid. Um, is that something that seems like it's possible? Um, yeah, I'm not sure on the energy side. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of leapfrogging that's possible. And I know that uh, anywhere in the world that's uh, far from a grid and it's really expensive to provide the grid, then now uh, you know local grids and, and off-grid kind of uh, PV systems and, and wind systems are really beginning to be uh, competitive and catching on. So that's kind of leapfrog. But on the transportation side, it amazes me that – you know, we think of Uber as this kind of high-tech thing. There's the equivalent of Uber in like every country of the world now, and there's those kinds of uh, sharing, shared mobility systems everywhere. They have different names in different places, but that concept is already extremely widespread. So, I think that's uh, that's a kind of a leapfrog. And if, if you think about places like India, where they've had three-wheel, very efficient, super efficient, and and low-speed, actually surprisingly safe 
what they call auto rickshaw taxis that uh, people have been able to share rides, uh, you know, kind of forever since, you know, at least for a century. That's how it's worked. You can uh, get in with a stranger and, and cut the fare in half. And that's, of course, what people do because they're not rich. That exists, you know, so they've had that leapfrog. It's almost kind of like how do they modernize it without killing it? Uh, what's your favorite country in the world? Oh, India. Why? I just think uh, Indians are resilient. It's 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 um it's colorful chaos. I mean, there are times when I haven't been happy in India because I got sick, but I think Indians are lovely people. They tend toward being kind of humble and lovable. They they work hard. They're they're kind of low key. Um, they're dealing with massive problems, but they're really you know leaning in. And uh, no, I just think it's a great. It, it's I recommend anybody to go there. It's a fun place. So India's goal of electrifying their full set of vehicles by I don't know some very quick time frame. I think it was like 2030. Yeah. Uh, is, is that happening? That's ridiculous. But okay, like, why not? You know, actually, the country that might do it is Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka is really the, the little guy next door who is just a, could have been a province of India. But it's, uh, it's, it's really spunky. I like Sri Lanka a lot, too. And they have um, the highest share of hybrid vehicles in the world as a share. And they're rapidly introducing electric vehicles because they got the right tax policy and everybody's into it. They, they, Sri Lankans probably know more about electric vehicles than Californians. It's amazing. And uh, they've announced they're going to try to ban internal combustion engine vehicle sales by 2025, and they may pull it off. And the only other country that's trying for that is Norway. So those two countries are kind of neck and neck. But, you know. Norway, okay, you can believe it, but Sri Lanka, that's cool. It seems like a lot of that stuff works because you're talking about fairly dense cities because people are trying to move closer because they don't have access to mobility in the first place. Um, but as I guess they start developing and they, um, you know, the economy improves in many of these areas, are they going to start spreading out and becoming mm -hmm. less dense? Is this urban? Uh, is it urbanization kind of a blip for a lot of developing areas? Oh, yeah. I mean, sprawl is happening everywhere. Um, and, you know, you look at land use sat maps that uh, show, you know, again, in India, India is a country I, I pay a little bit of attention to, um, like all the growth is happening in, in suburbs. And um, at the same time, people are migrating into cities. A lot of it ends up people coming into slums. But the new construction is all out in suburbs. And so they're not really, uh, you know, managing growth in a sustainable way. And that's a big concern. I think China may be doing better because they're much more, you know, into management. And um, uh, there there are cities, I think Beijing sprawls pretty wildly, but, but uh, Shanghai does not. And I think we're going to see, you know, some a number of their cities that do pretty well. But in general, it's a problem. Yeah. I mean, we're all moving toward that suburbanized car-based kind of world as people get richer. If this is kind of going to happen or seems to be happening, what does that mean for climate change? Are we pretty much screwed or is there some uh, silver lining? Right. Well, I mean, you can you can look at it two ways. You, you, you could, uh, in the case of uh, urban travel and suburban travel, basically now we, we know that we could electrify everything. And uh, that doesn't solve certain problems, doesn't solve, you know, trucks and aircraft and, and things like that. But uh, at least for cars, we could do that. Then you just have to make sure that you decarbonize your, your electricity system. And that is happening slowly. Um, it's happening more in some countries than others. But uh, that combination is kind of the great hope for uh, uh, converting urban tra transportation systems into very, very low carbon systems. But, you know, it 
we may find that it's harder than it looks. You know, a lot of things look good, and we're really only at 2 or 3% electric vehicle shares in most places. So I think we have to also keep our eye on the ball of making cities just generally more sustainable. Let's let's build compact development. Let's help people take transit because let's make transit great. Let's make walking and cycling great. Let's help people get out of their cars. And, uh, you know, let's let's just decarbonize that way. Let's you know, let's do things that are basically inherently zero carbon. You've traveled around the world quite a bit. You've spent some time living in different areas and locations. Is there anything that you've seen that's actually made you pretty optimistic about transportation in the future? Um, or or is most of it kind of like bleak or really hoping it pans out okay? Huh. I don't know. Um, that's a good question. No, I'm pretty bleak. Um, no, I... <laughs> I... <laughs> um, I... I'll tell you one thing. Um, Enrique Peñalosa, who's the mayor of Bogota, said a great thing once. He just, I think he just, when I was listening to him one time at a, at a conference, said it off the cuff. But he said, you know, almost every problem as a mayor, every problem improves when people, when, when the city gets richer, when people get richer, and all kinds of things get better. But transportation gets worse. It's, the, you know, one of the few things that really clearly gets worse. And, and the world's getting richer. So, um, you know, we're, we're just going to always have this tide of people uh, wanting their own car or, or maybe it's eventually going to be that they want to just ride around uh, in an automated uh, on-demand vehicle alone, whatever it is. Um, fighting back against that is really hard. And I think um, and, and, and it would be OK if it didn't have these societal consequences where basically, I, in my opinion, and I guess in, in maybe many people's opinion, it, it has a very destructive impact on cities and city life. Uh, and so it's not even an energy question anymore. It's it's about how what kind of city do we want. So I think the only way to to solve this is for people to to be very clear on what kind of city they want, and for us to collectively take the strong measures to sort of tame the automobile. And I think we have many good examples. We have cities that have done a great job of taming the automobile, but um, but by and large, most cities have failed. And I think it's almost like cities have to go through a phase with horrible traffic and, and you know, it, it in most parts of the world, it still also means horrible pollution. So that is still a huge problem and electric vehicles will help solve that. But uh, you look at the most advanced cities and they tend to be in Europe. Uh, there's a few other ones like Singapore, a couple in the United States, but they finally reach a point where they realize that this individual freedom is compromising the, the, the health of the city and everybody's well-being. And so, you know, the Copenhagens and Amsterdams and Helsinki's and Berlin's are finally really changing and becoming wonderful places to be a pedestrian. And so all I can say is I hope that the rest of the world catches on. So Copenhagen, I was recently in Copenhagen, and I was reminded that there, the old town of Copenhagen, which is sizable, is not only car free, they don't even allow you to ride a bicycle in the old section. It's pedestrian only. I mean, this is extreme, right? This is, uh, but there's enough uh, pedestrian traffic that bicycles kind of get in the way. But now there's plenty of other, obviously, uh, Copenhagen's a big bike town, so there's plenty of other places to ride bikes and, and right around that, that old uh, center. Uh, it's all bike lanes and people are riding bicycles like crazy. But to reach that point where they won't even allow bicycles is just sort of the next level. Incidentally, Denmark also is building bike highways. So they've got four-lane, uh, two-lane-each-way bike highways so that the the people with electric bikes can can go faster than or, or whoever's a fast cyclist can go faster than, than the others. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, I just hope more of us can get to. But it really... 
uh, matters. Once you're do- living that way, those kinds of things really matter. It's 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 like Kalimborg and Copenhagen and these kind of uh, archetypical academic. Kalimborg is it like Northern uh, Netherlands? Yeah, but they have like a circular. I've economy. heard. Yeah. Oh, I've heard there. It's a very cool city. I've yeah. never been there. Yeah, so like I a, hate it when I haven't been to a city. You know, fully circular economy uh-huh. in work there for almost three decades. Uh-huh. Um, pretty interesting. They have very intricate industrial ecology system. Huh. I've heard they also have really, really good uh, transportation system. They have a nice, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, everything's very well yeah. designed, very yeah. well centrally engineered. Okay. Um, uh, so th- this is what I'm saying, though. You know, these kind of archetypical examples of, of well planned cities is great and all. But I mean, trying to layer that on to sort mm. of the, the kind of um, uh, the helter-skelter kind of nature of some of the big cities in the world, you mm. know, that we have mm. in Sao Paulo or Rio or yep. uh, Bangladesh or yep. Mumbai or something. Yep. Yep. You know, can you imagine trying to sort of take that and layer it onto 20 million, 30 million people? And it's sort of hard for me to really even visualize how that would even work. I mean, right. so... Wh- yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's tough. Um, you, you, first of all, I mean, and it's, it really is different in different places. I think in the U.S. the challenge is retrofitting. You know, how do we change from what we've built? We've built a really sprawlish, car-dependent set of, you know, communities all around the country. And to what it, it once, if we can begin to need that less, how do we how do we re- repurpose it? It's it's uh, it's expensive and it's going to be challenging. But in the fast-growing parts of the world, you're right. The problem is just managing it, and it's all happening basically faster than than can be managed. And um, you know, I, I do think China's done an amazing job, and and it's not you know just the national government, but basically city governments in China have just you know they just take a heavy hand, and I applaud it because you just have to if you're going to have a city that's livable, you're going to have to, you know, first of all you're going to find the money to build the metros, and second of all you're going to start charging tax you know serious taxes on owning a car. Um, I mean, Singapore led the way in terms of showing how to have a city that that works. I mean, they built the the subways and they built the regional rail early and then they made it difficult to own and operate a car, but people didn't really need it. And so it's been politically popular. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it takes a high degree of, of governance to pull that off. And when you have, uh, you know, let's say if you're in India or or Africa, and you've got a huge rural to urban migration going on, then that just makes it that much harder. So, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. I, I think when we start talking about transportation of the future and what the world's going to be like, we really have this kind of bias towards cities and urban mm. environments. Mm. But the other side of that is a rural ecosystem. Like, there are in the U.S., we definitely run into people that hate living in cities right. all the time, that right. hate the concept of cities. They like car ownership. They like suburbia. They like having space. They like having homes and property and all of that. And I, I don't think it's maybe unreasonable that people want this. So how does that fit into this transportation landscape and design and discussion of what the future holds? Right. Well, I think the way this conversation is going, it's like uh, every one of your questions causes me to think, well, there's the U.S. version and then there's sort of the rest of the world version. But so the U.S. version is, yeah, it's kind of suburban, exurban, you know, bleeding into rural life. And and actually, I, I think that suburban living is is kind of lo- a longing for that rural life, right? We, we, we kind of like to pretend it's rural living. Um, and uh, and I think it is challenging uh, to transform that transportation system. I do think that um, we know for sure that large buses don't work in, in 
you know, low density areas. It, it, in this country, we end up with, you know, three people on the bus. Um, it may be that on-demand micro transit or even uh, hopefully very efficient, uh, you know, sedans, four-seater sedans that, that give you door-to-door service, it's going to take longer to get the vehicle to the house, but at the same time, it took a long time to get, you know, it takes a long time to wait for the bus. But maybe we can at least improve some of the options out there uh, for sharing and uh, in a way that's not uh, not too long. You know, time is really the big thing. We, we, we don't think about it that much, but all of the money we spend on transportation, and it's a lot of money, is actually less. I mean, the, 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 the evidence tells us that the amount of money we spend on transportation is less than the time value of all the time we spend traveling. So that is part of the part of the equation. And when you live out there anywhere low density, you're, you, you, the last thing you want to do is spend more time to get where you're going. So we have to figure out ways to to avoid you know waiting 20 minutes for the bus and then it, it goes somewhere and it takes longer. Um, but we can also benefit from the fact that we're in the electronic economy now. I know we're you know probably staying home more and just relying on trucks to deliver things. We're pretty close to where your refrigerator tells Amazon that you need another beer. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but but maybe that is something that at least provides, uh, you know, some benefits in, in, in the more rural areas. I think in let's let's move it to Africa. If you're in a rural place in Africa, now we're talking some life or death stuff. There are communities in Africa that can't get medicine, and now they're beginning to, you know, use drones to bring medicine into communities. So that is a palpable, you know, benefit of the modern economy for those people. California, great country or greatest country. Right. Maybe just great. But but still, I mean, I, 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 think, I think it does well. And on that note, I think we can probably wrap this interview up. So uh, thanks, thanks, Lou. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was fun. Thanks, Lou.
I took on 